one more song, 817, I Need Jesus. Amen? Amen. 817. Sunday school this morning enjoyed Brother Shag's. Well, enjoy is really not the word. Amen. Uh, how many of your hearts were moved by the presentation in Sunday school this morning? That's that's a much better way to put it. And uh, we praise the Lord for that. Praise the Lord the Shag family could be here with us. And uh, praise the Lord. We'll be sending them along with a nice little love offering. I hope at least get them out of town. Amen. And. Uh, 
No, we're, we're going to do our best to take care of them. I believe we can do a good job at that. And uh, praise the Lord. The work is progressing in the basement and around the, the building. Any other praises to add to the list? Okay. to take people off the prayer list. Amen? Because that means God answered those prayers. Anyone else? Any other praises? Brother Ted. work on that for next week. You make that a prayer request, right? Okay, Brother Paul. doesn't have to tell us about. Isn't that a wonderful thought? How many times have we all come close this week and uh, to death's door and didn't even know it? Somebody cut you off in traffic, somebody pushed you off the subway platform, and the Lord was just there, took care of you, and you didn't even know it happened. Amen? And uh, praise the Lord, every once in a while, he, he, he blesses us with special things, lets us get a little break. Every once in a while, that's a good thing to have. Amen? All right. Let's pray. Oh, Rowena, we don't want to let you out. Amen. Praise the Lord for his word. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for all the things that you do. Lord, we thank you that you are God in the great circumstances, the good circumstances, and what we even deem the bad circumstances. We praise you that you are always God and you'll always take care of us and you see us through. We thank you for your provision. We thank you for fellowship. We thank you for the privilege of being called by your name. We thank you that you want to use us in your service. We thank you for the forgiveness of sins. And Lord, we thank you that you love us in spite of knowing everything about us. We praise you, Lord, and we ask you to bless this service tonight. Amen. Brother Franz? Let's stand and celebrate 328. It's 328. Blessed be the ties that bind.
morning if you were here for Sunday school you got to see brother Shag's presentation of what God has called he and his family to do actually him and his family and uh, they want to go to the country of Venezuela and start churches and train people to start churches and that's the job of evangelism and so we've uh, Ask Brother Shag to preach to us tonight. I'm sure he'll have a little bit more information on Venezuela, uh, but we want him to preach the dog, preach the word to us tonight. Whatever the Lord's laid on your heart, brother, the pulpit is yours. And thank you for having my family and I here. It's our privilege to be here in New York. I praise the Lord that uh, he kept us safe driving in here. You know, I'm not used to driving in big cities. And I don't know how many times I was near death, amen. <laughs> but uh, it, would, it had to be close a few times that the Lord protected us. And, well, while you're turning there, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we're going to make three stops tonight. This is where we're going to start. But while you're turning there, I want to ask you a question before we get started the question is this how or what does a missionary and a penny have in common does anybody know what a missionary and a penny have in common they're one cent i don't know if you'll get that or not a penny is one cent with a c right a missionary is one cent with an s one cent i know it's not very funny but <laughs> it's a play on an english word uh, one cent maybe some of you it doesn't make any sense amen <laughs> It wouldn't make any sense in Venezuela because they speak Spanish and you couldn't tell that joke because they wouldn't get it. And um, it reminds me of a story. When we were in Venezuela, I had the opportunity to preach at two churches in the, in the capital city. And the missionary that was there told me of a time he had a well-known evangelist in to preach for him there in Venezuela. And the evangelist did not speak Spanish, so he was going to be speaking in English while the missionary translated and the evangelist told the missionary he was going to start the service off with a joke. And the joke was much like the one I told. It was a play on an English word. And the missionary said, no, don't tell it. The people will never get it. And the evangelist said, ah, I'm going to go ahead and tell it anyway. So as he's telling this joke at the start of the service, the missionary is translating, and he says to the people in Spanish, he says, this evangelist is going to tell you a joke, is telling you a joke, and you're not going to get it. He said, I want you to laugh when I tell you to laugh. 
So uh, the evangelist tells the joke, and the missionary says, okay, laugh. And everybody just started dying laughing. And uh, the evangelist looked over at the missionary and said, you see, I told you they'd get that joke. And little did he know, they had no clue what uh, that joke was all about. And it kind of went over probably. Well, I, I started thinking about that. As we were driving, he told me that story. I started thinking, how many other times did this evangelist tell this joke in a Spanish-speaking church, and it just probably went over like a lead balloon, kind of like my uh, opening joke did <laughs> this evening. But anyway, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 is where we're going to begin tonight. And we're going to start out by talking about farming. I have a message on my heart tonight. I hope I'll be able to get it across. But uh, I grew up in the country. I grew up in Mansfield, Ohio. And my parents didn't own a farm, but they owned eight acres of woods that was nestled in between two big farms. So I have a brother that's close to me in age, and we grew up out in the country doing the things that boys like to do in the country, hunting and fishing and, and just about killing each other out there on the, in the woods. And um, while we got to enjoy our neighbor's property, we had permission to hunt all their land and to fish in their ponds and to, to do anything we wanted to on their land. They were our neighbors, but we didn't have to do any of the work because we didn't own the farm. Because the first word that comes to my mind when I think about farming is the word work. Farming takes work. You know, I have a burden in my heart tonight about how much work there is to be done for the Lord Jesus Christ while we're here, while there's still time to do it. You know, it never ceases to amaze me to hear saved people, born-again people, say things like, Brother Joe, I'm bored. I wish there was something I could do for God. Folks, can I tell you tonight, there are not enough hours in the day to get all of the work accomplished. There's so much work to be done. I believe with all my heart tonight that there are more people in this world who want to be saved than there are those going out and telling them how to be saved. I believe there are more people in the world tonight who genuinely want to know the God that created them. They want to know Him as their Lord and Savior. And there are more people in that condition than there are those workers and those laborers going out and telling with the Bible and showing a person how they can know the God that created them through the person of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The problem in our world today is not with the unsaved. It's with the people of God. Amen. Getting out and laboring and working in the fields. And I think uh, the Bible will back me up on that statement tonight. Let's read uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We're going to read a few verses here and have a word of prayer. And uh, see if I can get this message across tonight. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse number 6. The Bible says, I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. Now as we just to interject this thought as we read here. We're going to talk about missions and harvesting and planting and things like that tonight. The first thing we need to realize about missions and evangelizing the world is that it's all about God. Amen? He's the one that gives the increase. It's not about the missionary. It's not even really about the country he's going to. It's all about God. It's God that gives the increase. Uh, verse number, I don't know if I read verse 8. Let's verse 8. Now he that planteth and he that watereth are one. And every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. Now look at verse 9. For we are laborers. That's a worker. That's somebody that's willing to get out in a field and get some blisters on their hand 
maybe some blisters on their heel, get a sore back, be willing to get out and labor and work. Now, we are laborers together with God. It's an interesting thought there. I mentioned this morning in my testimony, I worked as a CPA in downtown Cleveland, Ohio at a large accounting firm. And when I started there, I was the low man on the totem pole. And uh, I was what you would call a laborer, I guess, if you can consider an accountant a laborer. I don't know. But uh, I was sitting in an office, and I would have stacks of financial statements on my desk from companies that we were auditing. And I'd be sitting there with my calculator, checking numbers, tying things out, making sure everything was right. And believe it or not, I was laboring. My, my fingers would even get sore, all right, pushing the calculator. And never one time did I look over my shoulder and see the CFO of our company sitting there with a stack of financial statements laboring with me um, and punching in those numbers. He was past that. Amen. That was beyond. He didn't have to do that anymore. He had done that. Now he was the boss. God's not like any boss man you or I have ever had. You get out there in the field and you labor for him. You look over your shoulder. He's going to be right there with you. Amen. He'll, he'll go to that door with you. Jesus said, Lo, I am with you always, uh, even unto the end of the, end of the world. God is not like any boss or CFO that, that you or I have ever had. The Bible says here we are laborers together with God. The rest of that verse says, ye are God's husbandry, ye are God's building. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for this place that we have to meet in tonight. Thank you, Lord, as has been mentioned tonight, that we have the word of God in our language. Lord, they tell me there are over 6,000 languages in the world, yet less than 300 of them have the completed scriptures. Father in heaven, that breaks my heart tonight. I pray that you would stir us, your people, to get out and work and to do what uh, you would have us to do in this late day and age in which we live. Help us to tonight maybe to surrender to your will, to do more to reach the lost than we've ever done in our lives. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In verse number 9, Paul says, Ye are God's husbandry. Now, the word husbandry is an old English word, really, that we don't use a whole lot anymore. You look it up in a dictionary, and it simply means a farm. So there's a great big farm out there, if you will. There's a great big farming project out there, and it's God's farm. And God Almighty is like, if we can use this illustration tonight, He's like a great plantation owner. And He is the plantation owner on a huge farm, and He has gone out and purchased to Himself some servants. If you're here tonight and you're saved, if you've been born again, you've been purchased. Amen? The Bible says, what? Know ye not that your body is a temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own, for ye are bought with a price. We've been purchased. Therefore, the Bible says, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. You see, you if you're saved tonight, you belong to God. I belong to God. I've been purchased by the precious blood of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He bought me. Paul said in Romans chapter 1 and verse 1, as he introduces himself to those Roman Christians, here's how he described himself. First and foremost, he says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. Pastor uh, read this morning in the, in the book of Revelation, as John uh, talked about himself, in that first verse it says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him, that he gave to his servant. And John then later said, and to me, his servant. John considered himself a servant. I believe every believer ought to consider themselves a servant to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's purchased us. We don't belong to ourselves. You know, there are a lot of uh, Christians that don't like that idea. There are a lot of people in the world, you know, they always are complaining. They want their rights. They want their freedom. They want this and they want that. You know, I got to thinking about that. 
If I had my rights and my freedom the way this world wants it, the way some Christians want it, that would mean I'd have to be out there scraping and working and doing all I could to provide for my own living. But as it is, with God Almighty as my great plantation owner, as it is, He feeds me. Amen? He gives me a place to stay. Everything that I need is provided for me by the great and the wise and the loving plantation owner, God. All I have to do is go out and work in His fields. I don't think that's unfair. And I don't think it's unkind. As a matter of fact, if I wasn't out serving God, I can guarantee you tonight I'd be out serving the devil somewhere. So you know what you and I ought to do? As I'm trying to lay some groundwork for this message. We ought to consider ourselves servants, laborers for God. You know, there's an interesting thing you can study it out. Jesus says that he no longer considers us servants, but we are friends and heirs and joint heirs. But we ought to consider ourselves voluntary servants to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ought to get out there and plant our row. Amen? And, and water it and hoe it and pull the weeds and do just exactly what it is that God has told us to do. So we're laborers together with God. Now, if you would, take your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 9. This is stop number 2, Matthew chapter 9. And we'll pick up some familiar verses here, especially as you talk about missions and harvesting. Matthew chapter 9, and we'll begin reading in verse 35. Matthew 9, 35. The Bible says, And Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them, because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep, having no shepherd. Then saith he unto his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous. I want to pause right there for a moment. Jesus says to his disciples, The harvest truly is, present tense, plenteous. Now say a fellow were to come by and say to Open Door Bible Baptist Church, you're wasting your time going out and passing out tracts and trying to reach people with the gospel because no one wants to hear the gospel anymore. Or say someone were to say to my family, uh, Brother Joe, you're wasting your time moving your family to Venezuela to try to reach that city of Maracaibo with the gospel because no one cares about what the Bible has to say anymore. According to what Jesus says right here, that's not true. Jesus says the harvest truly is plenteous. There are plenty of people to be reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are plenty of fruits to bring in. There are plenty of lives to be changed with the gospel. Jesus said so. He said the harvest truly is plenteous. I don't know what the population is here in New York City, but I know it's up there. In the state of Ohio, we have 11.5 million people in the whole state. That's a lot. In the uh, United States of America, there are 295 million people. In Venezuela, there are 25 million. In Spain, there are 40 million. In Peru, there are 28 million. In Japan, there's 127 million. In India, there's a billion souls. In China, there's 1.3 billion people, the world's largest population. Around the world, they estimate the population to be about 6.5 billion souls. Don't tell me that none of them want to hear the gospel. I don't believe it. Jesus said that the harvest truly is us, And it certainly is. But the rest of that verse goes on to say, But the laborers 
are few. Those workers that we've been talking about. Those that are willing to go out and reap a harvest. They're few. You know, my wife and I sure found this out when we, when we traveled to Venezuela in December. Had the opportunity to fly from Caracas, the capital city, over to Maracaibo. Now, it was just my wife and I. I mentioned this morning there are no missionaries there. There was no one that spoke English. There was no one to take us around the city. And we flew in, and, and um, it's a long story, and I'll spare you all the details, but we were able to get a, a taxi to take us to the hotel that we had reservations in. And the hotel was a 15-story building, and we were in the top floor. And we went up into that top floor. Now, now, please picture this scene. I had been praying. I had contacted some missionaries in Venezuela. We felt the Lord's leading to Venezuela. We had been praying about it. I was asking them, where's the greatest need? What city doesn't have any missionaries? Every one of them said Maracaibo. Every one of them mentioned that city to me. We had been praying about that city. I had just gotten there. I walked in up into the, into the hotel. I went up to the 15th uh, story. walked in the room that we had, and I walked over to the window and opened up the curtain. And for the first time in my life, I stood overlooking a city that I'd been praying about taking the gospel to. And the Lord broke my heart. You know, as I stood and looked at that city, I began to think, Oh, God, please do something to at least allow these people an opportunity to trust Christ as Savior. They are living in and never hearing a clear presentation of the gospel. You know, I, I thought about a verse, I had just, and it's weird how the Lord works, but I had just been studying this in the Bible. You know, there's two times, well, actually three, there's two times in the gospels where it actually mentions that Jesus Christ cried tears. Only two times. Once is in John chapter 11 at Lazarus' tomb. You know that verse, right? Jesus wept, a famous verse. Um, okay, you know that one. Uh, Luke chapter 19 is the other one. And in that passage, Jesus has gone up, and in Luke chapter 19, I believe it's verse 41, the Bible says, as he beheld the city, he wept over it. Jesus looked out over the city of Jerusalem and wept. And the, and the next verse tells us why. It says, saying, if you had only known. See, Jesus looked out over the city of Jerusalem that didn't know the things of God. I looked out over the city of Maracaibo and thought, they don't know. The Bible, says, um, to, uh, the Bible says that there are some that have not the knowledge of God. It says, awake to righteousness and sin not, for some have not the knowledge of God. Paul said, I speak this to your shame. Church, my brother. The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. I brought up that story because I looked out over a city of three and a half million people that has no church. The laborers are few. But what I want to kind of focus in on more tonight than anything else is on what Jesus says next here. Because this is amazing to me. You would think, now picture the scene. There's a multitude of people there. Jesus is there with his disciples. And he says to them, he, and, and, and he looks at them, and he says, fellas, the harvest. And maybe he cast his hand out over that huge multitude of people that was there. He says, fellas, the harvest truly is plenteous. And maybe he looked right at them, and he said, but the laborers are few. In essence, what he's saying is what we said at the beginning of the message. There are more people out there that need the gospel than there are those going out and reaching them with the gospel. 
And it amazes me what he says next. You would think that he would say, so get out there and work. Or try a little harder. Expand your ministry. Look what he says to do in verse 38. Jesus says, pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. He said there are more to reach than there are those of you to go out and reach them. He says, you know what I want you to do? I want you to pray. I want you to pray and pray and pray and pray the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. You know what we need more in our independent Baptist churches than anything else, I believe, is prayer. We need every born-again, we need a revival of prayer in our churches. We need every born-again believer on their face praying, Oh God, won't you send a laborer to my town, to my street, to my city? I mentioned this morning that I believe God answers prayer. And I can tell by your your prayer requests that this is a church that prays. And I believe God answers prayer. Can you imagine if every believer in Queens or in Astoria was on their face praying, Oh God, won't you send a laborer? Won't you send more laborers here? Can you imagine what that might accomplish? The problem is we don't pray like we should, do we? We don't pray like we should. You know, as far as I can tell in the Bible, this is the only prayer request that Jesus makes. And he says, Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest, that he'll send forth laborers into his harvest. Why would that be the only prayer request he makes? Can I say to you tonight, that Jesus' heart is broken when he looks out over Africa and he sees millions of little black children and black people dying and going to the devil's hell. He wants laborers sent there. And I'm convinced they're only going to go as a result of God's people praying. Jesus has asked us to pray. I'm asking you tonight, this is what's on my heart, as a church and as an individual, will you pray? Will you pray more than you've ever prayed laborers to be sent not I mean in your area and around the world I'm talking about a daily time that you spend alone with God in prayer um, I'm convinced I want to spend some time on this I'm convinced that prayer is at the root at the heart of everything in the Christian life I think that if we prayed like we should like we were praying, Pastor Montoro would probably never have to preach on witnessing because we would witness. We would be a witness wherever we went. It all starts with prayer. As you pray for the lost and ask God to burden your heart for the lost, He answers that prayer and you witness. But when you're not praying like you should, you don't witness like you should. If we're praying like we should, giving would not even be a second thought. It all starts with prayer. I believe everything in the Christian life starts with prayer. And my question is, why is it? If you're like me, why is it that we as Christians seem to busy ourselves here in America so much that one of the first things that we crowd off of our to-do list is time alone with God in prayer? And I want to challenge you with a couple of thoughts tonight. I want to give you two reasons why I think we don't pray like we should as Christians. Okay, I'm going to preach a negative message. Okay? Uh, tell Joel Osteen to go fly a kite <laughs> because this is going to be negative tonight. You know the Bible says to reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Two-thirds of that is negative. One-third of it is positive. So I'll try to get a little bit of that in there too. But um, I want to give you two reasons tonight why I think we don't pray like we should. Number one, while I stand before you tonight, I can tell you in all sincerity that I believe every word of this Bible. Amen? From Revel- from Gen- Revelation. From Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 
um, 22 and I think 21, I don't doubt a single word of this blessed book. I believe every word. I believe what the Bible says about the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is, that he is God manifest in the flesh. I believe what the Bible says about salvation, that it's by grace through faith. I believe what the Bible says about heaven. And I believe, though it's not popular today, I believe what the Bible says about a place, a literal place called hell. I believe it's a real place. I believe it's a place of torment. I believe it's a place of fire. I believe that's what the Bible says, what the Bible teaches. This is what I believe the Bible teaches. I believe a person that does not receive Jesus Christ as Savior, when they die, they will go to hell. They will be held there until the great white throne judgment. Upon that day, they'll be resurrected. They'll stand before God at the great white throne, and they will be cast forever, eternally, into the lake of fire. That's what I believe the Bible teaches. Um, the Bible says, that, And whosoever is not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. That's eternal punishment. You never get out. It's eternal. That's what I believe is the fate of a lost person. Amen? Is that true? Amen? While I believe that, the thought then comes to my mind, then why don't I pray? Why am I not praying every day for my lost relatives and my lost neighbors across the street and those lost souls down in Venezuela? Why don't I pray like I should if I really believe that that's what this Bible teaches? And you know what the first reason is why I don't? And this might sound hard and might sound mean. I don't mean it to, but this is why I think it is. I think that we just don't care. Amen? We don't care like we should. If we cared like we should, no one would have to tell us to pray. No one would have to beg us to pray. No one would have to remind us to come to a prayer meeting. If I cared like I should, I would pray. But sometimes I don't. And it tells me there's something wrong in here. I'm not looking at the lost like Jesus is looking at them. In the verse that we read, when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion because he saw him fainting, scattered abroad. He saw him as sheep without a shepherd. I believe when Jesus looked on his soul, he saw him dropping into hell one after another. And he's asked us to pray. I'm asking you tonight as a church and as an individual, will you pray? Will you get alone with God and pray more than you've ever prayed? It'll revolutionize your Christian life. It will. Pray. Pray. So the first reason I think we don't pray like we should is because we don't care like we should. We're too caught up in this American lifestyle to care. Do you care? If you don't, maybe you need to get alone with God and say, God, he's right. I have not cared like I should, and it's evident in my prayer life. Second reason I think that we don't pray like we should is I think that um, we know as Christians, if we were praying every day, oh, God, won't you send laborers to Tanzania, Africa? Won't you send laborers, Lord, to Russia. Won't you send laborers to the street that I live on in New York City? I think we know in our heart of hearts that if we were praying like that every day, that God just might come by and say, hey, you know the gospel. Why don't you go? And many of us are not surrendered to God's will for our lives. and We don't want to be a laborer ourselves, so we don't pray for laborers like we should. Does that make sense? There are no doubt probably parents in this room 
that won't pray for missionaries because they can't bear the thought of their son or their daughter going and living in a mosquito hut somewhere to try to reach a people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. In my own family, I mentioned this morning in my testimony, I did not grow up in a Christian home. My mom is saved. I don't believe my dad is. And um, when, when we surrendered to, to, to go to the mission field, and when I went to talk to my parents that, and told them in a few months we were going to be moving to Venezuela, it broke their hearts. We, my two little girls, Ella and Naomi, they're my parents' only granddaughters. When they look at them, they're the, to, to my parents, my kids are the cutest things upon the face of this earth. Amen? They are to me too, by the way. But they are to my mom and dad especially. And when they look at them, it breaks their heart to know that they're going to move to a foreign country and not live in America. And it breaks my heart as well. And, and you know, while we knew there was going to be some sorrow and some sadness, we were not prepared for the opposition that we have faced in our families. I've been yelled at, cussed at, told off. My wife's family has accused me of uh, brainwashing her and now taking the family to another country. And it came to a point one time when, when I hung up the phone with an upset relative and looked up to God and said, God, is it really all worth it? Is it really all worth having your family completely against you? And you know what the Bible says? Jesus said this. He said, think not that I am come to send peace on earth. He said, I am not come to send peace but a sword. He said, for I am come to set a man at variance against his father and the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's foes shall be they of his own household. That's what Jesus said. He said, He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. He that findeth his life shall lose it. But he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. Those are the words of our Savior. You know, the answer to the question, they would ask me, how could you go and, and take your family to, to that place? The answer to that question is simply this. How could I not? Knowing what I know, I'm saved. Amen. I'm born again. I have eternal security. I'm going to spend eternity with the Lord Jesus Christ. I've been so blessed. How could I not go and share the gospel with a city of people that don't have it? We have to trust the Lord. Amen. We just have to trust Him. It's that simple. We need to trust Him. You know, there's a great verse in Romans chapter 8, verse 32. One of my favorite verses says, He that spared not His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? When I think about a God so great as the God that we serve, that when I was lost and in my sin, when I had turned my back on Him, He loved me so much that He didn't even spare His own Son. He had Him butchered on a cross for me when I had turned my back on Him. That's our God. Amen? That's how much He loved me. And now to think that I'm His child and want to do His will to question His care, there's no question. He's able to take care of us. He's able to provide our monthly support. We have to trust Him. One more stop. Turn with me, if you will, please. Really, And we'll be really brief with this. Jeremiah chapter 8. We've been talking a little bit about harvesting. 
and praying the Lord of the harvest, and he'll send forth laborers, workers to get out in the fields. Perhaps you're here tonight and you've never been saved. Perhaps you're here and you've never had that time when you, when you understood the gospel that Jesus Christ died for you personally, that he was buried, that he rose again from the dead, that he paid the sin debt, that he paid for every sin you've ever committed, past, present, and future. Perhaps you've never called upon Him to save your soul and been born again. That happened to me on June 7th of 1992 at the age of 17. I realized I was a lost sinner on my way to a devil's hell. But that Jesus Christ came to this earth 2,000 years ago and He took my place. He paid the price that I deserved. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. All I had to do was believe on Him. And I called upon Him to save me that day and He did. He saved me on that day. Perhaps you've never been saved. Can I say to you tonight that there's coming a day when I believe God's going to send those laborers out for the last time? There's coming a day when I believe God's going to say, okay, that's it. The work's all over. And He's going to call all of His children home. And if you're not saved, you're going to have to stand before God one day and maybe repeat the words that we see here in Jeremiah chapter 8, verse number 20. The Bible says here, the harvest is past. The summer is ended, and we are not saved. It be the most horrible thing you could ever do, stand before God one day, having been in this church, knowing that the Bible teaches that Jesus Christ died for you. It would be horrible to stand before God one day and have to say, I'm not saved. You could be saved tonight. You could be saved right here in this place tonight. Christian friends, will anyone you know stand before God one day? And have to say, I'm not saved. We all know people like that. The harvest truly is plenteous. The laborers are few. Will you pray the Lord of the harvest? Will you, do, will you pray the Lord of the harvest to send forth laborers, number one? And number two, would you be willing to be a laborer yourself here in this church? Let's have every head bowed and every eye closed. I'm going to have a word of prayer. And have an invitation time. Perhaps you're here and you've never been saved. I would encourage you tonight to trust Christ as Savior. The Bible says, Boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. None of us are guaranteed a tomorrow. None of us are guaranteed another breath. The Bible says that our lives are but a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. Life is so short. Trust Christ while you can. Believe in Him. Repent of your sin. Ask Him to be your Savior. You could be saved tonight. And Christian friend, maybe the Lord has spoke to your heart tonight and you just want to come to this place of prayer. I'm going to have a word of prayer and begin the invitation. Heavenly Father, thank You, Lord, for Your Word once again. And Lord, while the call has been tonight to prayer, I hope the, the folks that are here realize that it's not me that's asking them to pray, but it's the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Father, You are the one, Lord uh, Jesus, You are the one that said, Pray ye therefore, the Lord of the harvest, that He would send forth laborers into His harvest. Lord, I pray that You would work in hearts tonight. I pray for that one that doesn't know You as Savior, that they would be saved tonight before it's eternally too late. And I pray, Lord, for the Christian that is here. Maybe they've gotten lackadaisical in their prayer time. They know they're not praying like they should. 
And, oh, Lord, how their life could change if they would spend that time alone with you on a daily basis. I just pray, Lord, for decisions to be made tonight, commitments to be made, people to draw closer to you, to be more conformed to the image of your dear Son. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Just simply going to ask Julia to play a few verses.